Welcome to Christchurch Manchester Sermon Podcast. CCM is one church that meets every Sunday in various locations across Manchester. For more information about who we are or about our Sunday meetings, please visit www.christchurchmanchester.com. Now we've been in the series in Galatians, I think we're maybe six weeks in. We've got probably four to go. And what you might have noticed from Galatians is that basically it's one letter um, with one point that Paul is, uh, is going after. Um, now, I had a plan, um, and I, it was an all right plan, um, but w- last night I decided it was terrible. Um, so I changed it. Um, so if this looks a little bit half-finished, um, it's because it is a little bit half-finished. Um, but uh, that's where we are. So I was reading through our passage, which is uh, Galatians uh, 3, 1 to 14. Um, and let's, let's read through the whole thing, and then uh, I'll tell you why I changed my mind about everything. Um, so, O oh foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Holy Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish that having begun in the spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? Does he who supplies the spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith, just as Abraham believed God and it was counted as righteousness? Know then that it is those of faith who are sons of Abraham and the scripture foreseeing that God could justify the Gentiles by faith preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. So then, those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. And next bit. For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all the things written in the book of the law, and do them. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. But the law is not of faith, rather the one who does them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. So that in Jesus Christ the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. Now, what I had planned before, I mean, you might read that and it might feel to you like Paul is swinging wildly from, from idea to idea. And uh, I think he is, um, because what he's, Paul has reflected on the Torah and the Old Testament scriptures for his entire life. Um, he has memorized them. He would, if you asked him to recite a passage from Genesis, he would have been able to recite it verbatim. He would be able to tell you what four different people thought about it. And so when Paul is, is making this case, he's making a case from the scriptures that he had from the Old Testament. And he's drawing on... Um, He's drawing on lots of ideas that people have been reflecting on and praying over for, for centuries. And you don't see it when you read this, but this passage is full of just quotes. He's literally just taking verses from Genesis, Habakkuk, Psalms, and just putting them in an order. And so if it looks a bit disjointed, or if you notice that and it feels like this is a, a very condensed summary of a very um, detailed argument, um, that's because this is a very condensed summary of a very detailed argument. And it was written so that uh, people who knew the Torah would talk about it for weeks afterwards and work out exactly what Paul was saying. 
Um, and what I was going to try and do was to go through that argument, and I realised um, that it was a mess. So, because Paul is cleverer than me, and I actually couldn't do any better. So, when I was reading last night, um, the beginning and the end uh, stuck, stuck out to me. And so verse 14 is, uh, so that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. And then if we skip back a few uh, to the beginning of the passage. Um, are you so foolish, having begun by the Spirit? Are you now being perfected by the flesh? And even before that, I want to ask you one thing. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? And it jumped out to me that Paul actually is going after one thing here. And the question Paul is going after is, to whom does God give his Spirit? And it stuck with me because I'm, I'm tired and I'm, th- I'm hungry and thirsty. I'm exhausted. I feel like I have staggered through the last three months of my life. I've gone from tragedy through frustration to farce. I've been disappointed by people that I held in very high regard. Um, public leaders and Christian heroes have found themselves under investigation for ridiculous behaviours. Other Christian heroes have passed away. Tim Keller passed away only this weekend. (coughs) Everyone around me in the world seems to be deciding to rip up all sorts of sacred truths that have been held as self-evident for generations. And even the Church of England seems to be giving up on the moral authority of Jesus Christ. It looks to me like we are going to destroy ourselves. I mean, you can pick your poison. It's either climate change, or it's overpopulation, or it's moral collapse, or it's war in Europe, or it might be war in Asia, or it might be a man-made pandemic, or it might be fake fake vaccines, or it might be collapsing birth rates, it might be a cost-of-living crisis, it might be sectarian violence. You only have to believe in, like, two of those things to struggle with the hope that God has for the world. So what I became aware that I needed and the world around me needed was the presence of God and the blessings that he promises to us. The world around me needs the blessing of God and needs his spirit and his life. So to whom does God give his spirit? And Part of my reflection and planning for the old sermon have been to spend a lot of time seeing what God was doing in Genesis, in all the covenants that Paul is, Paul is, uh, is, is laying up and is, is riffing off. And I realised that my feeling of tiredness, of exhaustion, my feeling that my hope is small compared to the state I see, I realised I was not alone in that outlook. And what I found as I read was a God who was so desperate to bless people, humans, with his presence, and yet every time he did, found he had to act to constrain their evil. I found a God who was deeply in love with the world and with the men and women that he created. 
But every time he turned to them and was with them, they would refuse him, they would hurt each other, and the violence would escalate. So to understand what Paul is getting at in Galatians with the blessing that is promised to the nations, I want to rattle through the story that I found in Genesis. That on one hand is a tragedy, and on the other hand lays up the hope for what God is doing and what God's plan still is to redeem his creation. So I don't have slides for this because, I, because I, it was made yesterday. So you take my word for it. Uh, Genesis 1 and 2, God creates a perfect world. He separates waters and he makes land. He makes space for humans to live in. He makes a garden for humans to work. He creates humans to work with him, to rule creation with him, to be blessed by him. These humans walk in God's presence. They have unfettered access to his spirit, to the tree of life, to his wisdom and teaching, to his love and blessing. Genesis 3 These two humans reject God's wisdom, love and blessing, and instead they choose what looks good in their own eyes. Without access to God's presence, humans find their work hard and futile. um, Humans find their work hard and futile. They are beset by grief. The world no longer submits to them, and their relationships with each other are broken. And so God, to constrain their evil, removes them from the tree of life. Genesis 4, things escalate. Brother kills brother. God shows grace and blessing to the murderer. Humans build enclaves and fortified cities to hide from each other. They learn to make weapons. A man starts treating a woman as property. Genesis 6, the world is full of violence. God can see that all man is doing with the blessing he gives to them is hurting his world and hurting each other. God says, I've seen where this is going, and they are going to destroy themselves. So God withdraws his blessing and lets the waters that he separated at creation come crashing back back together, and he speeds up the destruction that man was going to bring on itself. But just before he does this, he finds one righteous person and rescues him maybe there's hope after all the righteous person survives the flood protected by God in his presence and an expression of faith to Yahweh this is Noah an expression of faith to Yahweh he offers sacrifices and the Lord promises from this point forward I will work with humanity no matter how bad it gets I won't collapse creation again A fresh start. There's hope. We can do this. The righteous man immediately gets wasted and passes out drunk in his tent. And his son sleeps with his wife. Curses ensue. And God shortens the life of of humanity because our days are so evil. Genesis 11 God blesses humanity and they multiply again. However, the descendants of Noah are just as terrible as the people before. I think when we look at the story of the flood, we assume that the people before the flood were doing things really, really bad. And we're not as bad as them, and that's not why God has flooded us. But that's not the story. We are just as bad as the people before the flood. I mean, we are even more capable of destroying each other than they probably were. 
But God has promised that he will work with humanity. So the descendants of Noah are just as terrible as the people before. They make their own fortified cities. One city, in particular, is not content with ruling earth. And it claims the desire to rule the heavens as well. Seeing, that, seeing what all the humans can do and knowing that our motivations are evil, the Lord scatters mankind and he confuses our languages and he splits us into nations. Yeah, for a minute. That's very kind. Thank you. That's going to be wonderful on the recording. I think it's probably worse without seeing it because you get to imagine. You get to imagine what just happened. Um, so he confuses languages and philosophies and he divides mankind into nations and he disinherits them. It's getting worse, man. What is up with this world? So in Genesis 12, having just divided and disinherited the nations, God chooses one man. Huh? It's a pattern. And he says that he's righteous. And he calls him to leave his father and mother and follow him to a new land. He promises to bless this man, Abraham, to make him into a great nation. And through him, all the families of the earth will be blessed. Do you see, there's a... God has divided the nations to constrain their evil, and then he is making a new way to bless them anyway. Through his man, Abraham. Genesis 14 and 15, Abraham meets a king of peace and truth in Jerusalem. He pays homage to him, 10% of everything he owns. He expresses loyalty to, to the God who called him. He refuses to accept the help of a human king. The word of the Lord appears to Abraham and reiterates the promise of a nation. And Abraham believes God and it's counted to him as righteousness. Finally, another fresh start. It's good. The blessing's going to all the nations. It's about to be released again. This is just what we've been waiting for. One chapter later, Genesis 16, in an act of faithlessness, Abraham tries to fulfill the promise himself by sexually abusing a foreign slave. The blessing given to him by faith was supposed to bless all the nations. And what is the first thing he does with it? He takes it as license to fulfill the promise of authority that God gave to him. And so God has to try again. And this time he reinstates his covenant. He's still going to bless the nations through Abraham. But now there are conditions. Abraham and his descendants must stay separated from the nations they're supposed to bless. They must be circumcised. You know, I could continue through this story and you will notice the pattern over and over again of a God who is desperate to bless and at every turn finds that he has to constrain the faithlessness and evil of humanity. It looked really good with Noah for a, a very short moment. It looked really good with Abraham. You know, it looked good when he freed the Israelites from slavery in Egypt, but immediately he has to restrain them under the law. It looks good when he empowers the King David to liberate them from the Philistines. And David sleeps with a man's wife and has him murdered. It looks good when he provides the blessing in his temple under Solomon. And then the Israelites do child sacrifice. And they have to be rejected from his presence again. <coughs> so we come back to this question again. 
how do we receive the blessing of God? How do we receive his spirit? What is it that will make God stick with us? So in all of history, as Paul notes, there's one person who got particularly close to God. And that person is Abraham. And if you read Genesis, what you will notice is that Abraham has an access to Yahweh that is as ridiculous as it is not remarked upon. Abraham, he meets with God. He eats with God. God comes to his tent. He argues with God about what God's going to do with Sodom and Gomorrah. There's no suggestion that Abraham is doing um, purity washes or ceremonial cleansing. There's no suggestion that Abraham is going to a special tent to meet with God or a temple. So what was it that gave Abraham that access to God's spirit and to his presence? Because that's what we need. Why are humans making a mess of the world? Because we lack the wisdom and the presence of God. And this is the question Paul's asking in this chapter. Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing and faith, just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness? Paul's reading of this sorry sequence of events is that the righteousness that you need to be in close relationship with God is the sort of faith that God will count as righteousness. That alone is what will give you access to his blessing. And that alone is what gives you the ability to bless all the families of the earth. So I want to be clear here, as, as clear as Paul is being, the, the covenants of law, whether you're talking about the Mosaic one that came with Moses in the book of Exodus, or whether you're talking about circumcision, which came after, um, after the birth of Ishmael, they were never there to put you in right relationship with God. God promised blessings to the nation as part of them, but they were never there to give you access to his presence. They have no power whatsoever over your righteousness before God. And they have no ability to bless the nations because they all only applied to Israel and kept Israel separate from the nations they were supposed to bless. The only way to righteousness, right relationship with God, has always been through faith. <laughs> so we have a problem because those later covenants exist. And they restrict our access to the presence of God that we can receive through right relationship with him, through faith in him. They constrain the outflow of God's blessing. And what does Paul say the answer to that conundrum is? If we go to the third slide of this passage. For all who rely on the works of the law under curse, curse is everyone who is not able to abide by all the things written in the book of the law and do them. That's actually a quote from Deuteronomy. It says, Now it's evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. The law is not of faith, the, rather the one who does not live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. The point Paul is making 
is that if you have an agreement, a covenant with someone, once all of the curses are spent, it's spent. It's limited by the terms in it. So Jesus, by dying on the cross and everything else he did, he redeems us from the curses of the circumcision and Mosaic covenants. He submits to them fully. He meets all of their criteria. So the criteria of the... We'll do the circumcision one. The criteria of the circumcision covenant, which is in Genesis 17, there were two of them. One was that Abraham had to walk blamelessly before God, and the second was that he had to circumcise every male in his his household. And if either of those two weren't met, they would be cut off from the presence of God. So that's like what the circumcision thing is. It's like, you cut a bit of yourself off, or I cut you off. That's the picture. Jesus was blameless, and he was circumcised. He was owed all of the blessings of the circumcision covenant. And yet what he got was all of the curses. He was cut off from from God on the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So even though he met all of the obligations of the covenant, he suffered all the curse of failure. And so he literally buys us out of the covenant. If any of you have a mortgage, if I was to pay off your mortgage tomorrow, should you still pay interest to your bank? Should you still... uh, What other things should you do as part of a mortgage? I don't know. That's as far as that analogy goes. Should you still pay... Should you still abide by the terms and conditions? If I buy you out of a phone contract that was too expensive for you and you couldn't pay it, do you still abide by the terms of the the phone contract? No. And so this means I want to squash an incorrect understanding of the law in the Old Testament. Because I know a lot of people who, when they think about this, they kind of come down to a position that is like, all those laws in the Torah, they're like, they define what sin is, good and bad. And, but it's okay, there's grace to cover it. And then their kind of position in a text like Galatians is, yeah, rest in grace, but don't take the piss. It's more or less, there's like some kind of balance of it's okay to go so far, but not too far. But that is not the argument that Paul is making. Paul is, make, is saying that those covenants served a different purpose, and Jesus has brought you out of them. Uh, we have some friends, and um, they, they uh, believe that um, they kind of follow that line of thought through, and they go to Romans where it says, Am I to keep sinning that grace may abound? By no means. And so their answer is, well, we, should, we actually should obey the Torah law. Because if I love Jesus, I'm not going to take the mick of his, of his grace. So I'm going to obey all the laws. But that, it's, a, it's an incorrect understanding of Paul's logic here. Christ has redeemed you from the contract. You're not under the contract anymore. There is no law in the Torah that defines what sin is for you. Jesus has bought you out of your mortgage. You are under no obligation to pay interest to the bank. Um, Maybe another example. If you are a citizen of the UK and the US invites you to be a citizen of the US and you accept, do you keep paying taxes to the UK? No. 
You'll have no obligation to that old covenant anymore. So what Jesus has done in Paul's mind is he's rolled back the covenants that constrain the blessing of God back to the covenant that God makes with Abraham so that by faith we could receive the Spirit. And we are gen- most of us are Gentiles. So our entire access to the Spirit of God is because God has released his people from the covenants that kept them separate until they were mature, until Jesus came, so that God's Spirit may come to us. So, oh man. Uh, right. I want... I have to get somewhere, because otherwise I've left you in a terrible place. Um, so I want to read uh, Genesis uh, 14. And I am going to rattle through this. Uh, so this is Genesis 14, 17 to 15. You know, if this is the covenant we've been rolled back to, if this is what this was all about, then let's work out what that covenant actually is. Right? So this is where it's instituted. This is uh, the bit where... The bit Paul is quoting when he, um, when he says that Abraham's faith counts as righteousness. So Genesis 14, 17. Uh, there's a fight with some kings. After his return from the defeat of those kings, uh, he, comes, uh, to, he comes to the king's valley. And Melchizedek, you can ask me about that name later, that's a long conversation. Um, Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine, and now he was a priest of God Most High. He blessed him and said, Blessed be Abraham of God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. He gave him a tenth of all. The king of Sodom said to Abraham, Give the people to me and take the goods for yourself. But Abraham said to the king of Sodom, I have sworn to the Lord, the God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, that I will not take a thread or a sandal or a thong or anything that is yours for fear that you would say I have made Abraham rich. I will take nothing except what the young men have eaten and, I, and the share of the men who went with me. Ana, Eskol, Mamre, let them take their share. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abraham in a vision, saying, Do not fear, Abraham. I am a shield to you. Your reward shall be very great. Abraham replied, O Lord God, what will you give me since I am childless and the heir of my house is Eliezer, the son of Eliezer of Damascus? And Abraham said, Since you have given no offspring to me, one aborn in my house is my heir. Then behold, the word of the Lord came to him, saying, This man will not be your heir, but one who will come forth from your own body shall be your heir. And he took him outside and said, Look towards heavens and count the stars, if you are able to count them. And he said to him, So shall descendants be. Then he believed the Lord, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. And he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess it. And Abraham said, O Lord God, how do I know that I may possess it? And God said to him, Bring me a three-year-old heifer, a three-year-old female goat, a three-year-old ram, a turtle dove, young pigeon. And he brought all of these to him and cut them in two. And they laid each half opposite the other. But he did not cut the birds. The birds of prey came down upon the carcasses, and Abraham drove them away. Now when the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell upon Abraham. And behold, terror and great darkness fell on him. And God said to Abraham, Know for certain that your descendants will be strangers in a land that is not theirs. They will be enslaved and oppressed for a hundred years, for four hundred years, but I will also judge the nation whom they serve, and afterwards they will come out with many possessions. As for you, you shall, you shall uh, go to your fathers in peace. 
you'll be buried at a good old age, then in the fourth generation they will return here, for the iniquity of the Amorite is not yet complete. And it came about when the sun had set that it was very dark, and behold, there appeared a smoking oven and a flaming torch, which passed between these pieces. So what was Abraham's faith in that long passage? Well, the first thing is that in this passage, well, it sort of is, um, he left his home and followed Yahweh. Um, the second thing we see from Abraham's faith, I think I have these listed on a slide, yeah, uh, is he refused his blessing from other places. So he's so loyal to the Yahweh and the promise Yahweh has given him that he won't accept the help of a human king, specifically so that everyone knows that whatever blessing he receives is received from the hand of Yahweh. He trusted the Lord to make him rich, and he trusted him so much that he wasn't, at this moment, he isn't going to help, help God by getting help from other sources. Um, he paid homage to a king in Zion. So we have reference to this guy called Melchizedek, who's a bit of a strange fellow. He gets sort of acquainted with Jesus later in scripture. I could go more into that. But he believes, uh, he, 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 he respects the position of God's king in Zion to pay him a tenth of everything that he has. Uh, he believes God's promise to give him many descendants. And then the final one is um, he believes that the man standing in front of him was the Lord God. Because, it, man, I wish I could just talk to you for hours. But there's, um, there's this bit when he has this vision. So it comes to him in a vision. And then after it's come to him in a vision, the word of the Lord appears, appears to him in apparently a physical way, because the word of the Lord then takes him outside and shows him things. And then he brings animals to the word of the Lord. So this thing that is the word of the Lord is not like a disembodied spirit. He's not having a dream. Like it's, it's, a, it's a physical, it is a person who Abraham refers to as, O oh Lord God. So who do we know who is a person who is the Lord God? So something about Abraham's faith is that he believes in the position and the authority of the word of the Lord, God in human form. The faith of Abraham is belief, but that belief expressed itself in loyal actions. And those loyal actions were to the word of the Lord, God in human form. So in this passage, this is where I want to kind of come into land. I I don't have any time, but we'll we'll do it. In this passage, uh, you see um, the rough outline is there's a king in Jerusalem who happens to be a priest of the God Most High. And he brings out, uh, and and his title means the king of righteousness and truth. And he brings out to the people, to the person who has faith in Yahweh, he brings out bread and wine. Um, this This character then announces blessings and terms of a covenant. Then the uh, the word of the Lord appears in human form and announces more terms of the covenant, and then the covenant is ratified with a blood sacrifice. And then after the sacrifice, we see a fire pit and a flaming torch inhabit the sacrifice. That's kind of the the very top-level thing. And this is all happening on a holy mountain in Jerusalem. In the Gospels, we see a parallel story in Passion Week. Because we see a king welcomed into Jerusalem, he intercedes for his people, he fulfills a priestly function. The word of the Lord then announces the terms of a new covenant and shares bread and wine with those who have faith in him. The covenant is ratified by a blood sacrifice 
as the king is slaughtered on the cross. And then after the sacrifice, we have a bit of a wait. But then on the body of Christ, the fire comes to rest. So whereas the fire inhabited the sacrifice that, that sealed the promise to Abraham, at Pentecost, the fire inhabits those who have faith. And the reason why I wanted to go back to Genesis and why I wanted to go back to blessing is because the next thing that happens after God fills his faithful people with the Spirit is they start speaking different languages. And why is that important? Because in Genesis 11, to constrain human evil, God separated people. He made it impossible for them to talk to each other. And yet as soon as maturity comes, as soon as God's Spirit is available... As soon as it fills the sacrifice in the body of Christ, the undoing of his constraints on evil is beginning. No, it's not there yet. We're not there yet, but we can see from the story there is a pattern to what God is doing. Yes, the world sucks. Oh my gosh. Yes, people suck. The Lord is still committed. Like, if you have a football player that plays really well for you for like six seasons, I mean, apart from the fact that he'll be getting old, you will trust him to play well for you in the seventh season. We have a God who has laid out his plan for thousands of years and he has shown at every step of the way that he is, he is continuing to work on it. So if you need the spirit because you are struggling with the world that you're walking through, the way to the spirit, God gives the spirit to those who have faith in him. He has always given the spirit to those who have faith in him. He will always give the spirit to those who have faith in him. And the Spirit is the blessing of God that rolls back the constraint of evil and brings us to new life. So to whom does God give his Spirit? He gives his Spirit to those who have faith and are loyal to his Son, the King of peace and truth, the King in Jerusalem. And so I want to ask you today, I'm going to wrap up here. Are you loyal to the Son? Will you pay homage to the Son? Will you follow the Son? Will you have faith in the Son?